Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm David Rennie, The Economist Beijing Bureau Chief, and I'm here with my co-host Alice Su, The Economist's Senior China Correspondent, based in Taipei. Three weeks ago, we traveled to Washington, D.C. We met with Evan Medeiros, a former advisor to President Barack Obama, who's now a professor at Georgetown. We spoke with his students, and they were not optimistic about the future of the U.S.-China relationship. During that same trip, I talked to people at the heart of US-China policymaking. There's a lot of talk in Washington about a bipartisan consensus on China, that at a time when Republicans and Democrats agree on very little, that there's striking unity when it comes to seeing China as a competitor and even a threat. This week, we're asking, what does Washington's unity on China mean for US-China relations and for the world? And is that consensus as solid as it looks? This is Drumta from The Economist. Alice, how are you doing? Hi, David. I'm well. How are you? I am well. I'm sure like you, I'm recovering from DC jet lag. That 12-hour time difference is a bit of a killer Mm. between the East Coast and where we are. How long have it been since you were last in Washington, DC? Quite a while, actually. I think last time I was there was probably 2018. So a lot has happened since then. It was pre-COVID and it was good to be back to see friends. But I have to say it was also a bit discouraging in certain ways, which we will discuss on this episode. So the single most encouraging thing for me as a former longtime resident of Washington, D.C. is that the cycle lanes have become a lot better. Oh, So I was happily bicycling from meeting to meeting around D.C., on beautiful, separated from the traffic, high-quality cycle lanes. So props to DC for that. Oh, that's nice. You were replicating your Beijing biking life in Washington. (laughs) Yeah, with fewer Why My Delivering Bubble Tea. So, David, we're talking today about this bipartisan consensus on China, where it seems like everybody in Washington agrees that China is America's great competitor. That consensus is pretty remarkable if you consider how divided American politics is on pretty much everything else. And of course, it's a big break with what came before. Over decades, you had American presidents from both parties talking about how America would gain if China became stronger and more open to the world. Yeah, I remember back in 2015, during the Obama administration, Xi Jinping came to the U.S. on a state visit, and President Obama spoke about how he welcomed the rise of China. And that's why I want to say again, the United States welcomes the rise of a China that is peaceful, stable, prosperous, and a responsible player in global affairs. And I'm committed to expanding our cooperation, even as we address 
disagreements candidly and constructively. It's so interesting. Is that conditional welcome for China's rise, as long as it rises in a way that's helpful for global affairs? I remember, you know, back when Donald Trump was first running for president, he was the first candidate who really, really ramped up this rhetoric about China is not a friendly partner for us that we can work together with. He said, you know, China has been stealing American jobs. And I remember like he talked so much about China that it became a meme. He was saying, you know, all these former American presidents have let China take all of our jobs and let China steal from us. And it was like China, 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 China to me, China. And of course, the trick there was that he was using China as a kind of avatar for globalization and the failure of, as he would say, you know, American elites to protect the American people from that competition. And so at the start of his presidency, plenty of people wondered whether the China bashing was just like a show. It was all about actually trying to cut a trade deal with China and sort of put the pressure on. And now we know that actually Donald Trump had spotted a trend that was larger than him that China and America were both realizing that they actually aren't converging, that it isn't about China's rise suiting America, like we heard Barack Obama say. I remember in the latter days of the Trump administration, there was a lot of talk in China and Beijing where Chinese experts and some officials, you know, were were maybe hoping that this was a Trump administration thing. And if there was a different president, if Biden came into power, maybe there would be a change in direction and tensions might ease and we might go back to that Obama-style rhetoric about let's work together, let's engage, let's let's have dialogues. But that is not what happened. No, instead, as we know, Joe Biden kept the tariffs and he's now making it harder and harder for China to buy advanced American technology. And we've been talking about this over and over again on Drum Tower about how relations are at their worst point in decades. Xi Jinping has accused America by name of trying to contain and suppress China on all fronts. And now there's a lot of talk about a new Cold War. And what's really interesting is that for just the last maybe two or three months, I don't know if you agree, Alice, there have been faint signs of a thaw. We've had more high-level visits. I mean, certainly here in Beijing, I hear diplomats saying with kind of some relief that that kind of really terrible sense of tension between America and China is easing just a bit. Yeah, there are signs of a thaw, as you say, David. Xi Jinping skipped the G20 meeting in India, and that was seen as a big snub. But now it is looking likely that he is going to go to the APEC summit in America in November. And that would be a big deal, especially if he met with Joe Biden on the side. And even in the lead up to that, there have been meetings in Beijing between American senators and Xi Jinping, right? Chuck Schumer just led a delegation and it was the first congressional delegation to China since COVID. When he arrived in Beijing, he kind of spoke for the bipartisan consensus and was quite clear that in Washington, everyone is prepared to compete with China. The United States is ready to compete vigorously with the PRC, but we also must hold China accountable for any unfair practices that undermine the relationship between our countries. But then when Xi Jinping spoke, he was really downplaying the tensions. He compared them to just a little bit of wind and rain, just some stormy weather. You can hear him saying that China and the U.S. 
from the time when they established relations until now have been dealing with each other for more than half a century. And there has been a lot of wind and rain, kind of a nice euphemism for actually really terrible relations. So what is going on? Is the relationship improving? When I was in Washington, I talked to members of both houses of Congress, China officials in the administration. They all agree that things are better now than they were just a few months ago. But everyone thinks it's tactical that the fundamental differences remain and that if China has backed off, it is in part because China can see that Republicans and Democrats are pretty united in this kind of get tough posture. Tell me more about that get tough posture and tell me more about the extent of unity between Republicans and Democrats, because I know you spoke with people on both sides. Were any of them on the record? Mostly not. It's Washington. But two pretty central players were okay with being recorded. So I went to see the chairman of that House Select Committee that made a lot of noise when it was set up, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm sure you've read about him, Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin. Now, he is seriously tough on China, but he is also a Reagan Republican. He wants America to be a beacon to the world. He wants America to provide security around the world, certainly where you are in Taiwan, the Asia Pacific. He's not a turn inwards, America first, I don't care about the outside world, Trump kind of Republican. Yeah, he's not an isolationist. He's an internationalist, if you want to put it that way. Exactly. And then the other person who spoke to me on the record is a Democrat, Chris Coons. Now, he is a senator close to Joe Biden. Actually, he inherited Biden's Senate seat in the state of Delaware. And as you know, Alice, generally the Senate is less hot-headed than the House of Representatives. And you'll hear the two agreeing a lot about how to tackle the China challenge. So listen to this. This is Chris Coons talking about what that consensus on China actually involves. There is a strong and deep bipartisan consensus that China is the pacing challenge of this century, that China is a system that we have to deal with for the United States for this century. Yeah, and I think that a lot of that consensus is the product of China's own actions, right? It's not just that Trump decided to change direction and Biden carried on. It's that I think a lot of leaders in Washington have reached a moment of clarity on China after seeing its crackdown on Hong Kong, what happened in Xinjiang, Chinese aggression in the South China Seas, economic coercion, changing the constitution, you know, all these events that happened in recent years under Xi Jinping. I think they've really lifted the blinkers for people who used to think China's going to change, we just need to cooperate and things will get better. But of course, where I'm in Beijing, the Chinese led by Xi Jinping see the Americans containing China in a way that they always predicted and feared. This is America unwilling to accept a non-Western power as anything like a peer competitor. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was based in Washington, the China debate was all about how do we get China to allow more American investments. It was all about market access. It was all about American companies selling more in China. If China improves its human rights, if China behaves more like the West, then we want China to step up and do more and take more of a kind of role around the whole world. That was that clip we heard at the top about Obama. Now it's China's rise is of itself a challenge to everything that America holds dear and believes in. That is the consensus. And that is just having a gigantic effect, not just on US-China relations, but on the whole of the global balance of power. But at the same time, the consensus is not as solid as it seems, right? This is still Washington. So unity only goes so far. And Chris Coons admits that. The challenge where there are some areas of difference is the weighting of the extent to which some legislators 
see China principally as a competitor. Others see China principally as an adversary. Can we break that down a bit, David? So Chris Coons is saying here, some people see China as a competitor and some as an adversary. I mean, what difference does it make if China is a competitor versus an adversary? So the most basic level, you could have a friendly competitor. You know, if they're a pacing challenge, if this is a running race, you know, you can have two athletes who are perfectly capable of being good friends just out for, you know, who is faster and may the best man win. Or if you see China principally as an adversary, and there are Republicans, certainly on Capitol Hill, who would say, we should not pay too high a price or any price to get China to the negotiating table to talk to them. It's all about just treat them as an enemy and understand that we need to build up our strength and our defenses against them. So how does that divide play out in specific policy areas? In my conversations over a week in Washington, I guess three big things came up again and again. One is, fundamentally, do you think that America should fight these fights on its own? Or is it extremely important to have allies and partners with you? And second big thing is climate change, obviously a massive divide between the two parties on that. And there's a China element, which we can talk about. And then Taiwan, where you are. The great question, could there be a war with Taiwan? How should America try and avoid that war? How should it prepare for that? And you can see that this divide between the China as competitor view and the China as adversary view, that divide also plays into each of these areas. That's right. So let's start with that global coalition building. And working here in Beijing, I can see how alarmed Chinese officials or Chinese scholars sound when there's evidence that America has just rallied allies behind a common position. You know, when they get the Japanese and the South Koreans closer together, or when they talk to the Indians or the Philippines. China does not like a united front. Yeah, that's right. And that's really been the major difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. It's still seeing China as a competitor, but doing it together with all your friends and caring about their interests, trying to pull them all together rather than just doing it alone while pulling out of multilateral institutions. There are people in Washington who put a lot of weight on that need to be diplomatic, not push foreign governments too hard, let them stay friends with China, but try and bring them over to the American camp. And then you have a whole bunch of people in Washington who are all about America first. So Coons, he's definitely in the be diplomatic camp. It's important that we recognize that dozens and dozens of countries around the world are seeking to sustain meaningful relationships, both economic and policy and security and political relationships with both the United States and China. So if there are areas of disagreement, I'd say principally it's on the strength speed and trajectory of so-called decoupling and whether or not it is wise or even possible for us to fully decouple from China. So Kuhn's here is talking about the importance of recognizing what American allies want and realizing, yeah, we want to get them on board with us, but then we also have to pay attention to their economic needs, for example, and try not to alienate them. Yeah, but there are plenty of members of Congress around him, most of the Republican, who are just not very fussed about the idea that you need to build coalitions or even that you need to compete with China for hearts and minds. Coons points out that political dysfunction doesn't help. China is busy opening new embassies around the world to expand its diplomatic footprint. And right now, the US Senate has failed to confirm several American ambassadors to really, really important countries, including Israel. Yeah, that's really alarming. That's a sign of domestic politics hampering even the Biden administration's ability to carry out its allies-focused policies. And, you know, the week when we were in Washington together, America was on the brink of a government shutdown. We got an up-close look at that kind of internal dysfunction. 
Oh, Alistair kind of hung over every meeting I had, whether it was in the administration or on Capitol Hill. We need to be our best selves and compete with China. And then some staffer would come in and sort of give you the latest news on how the government was about to shut down. Gallagher, he's a Republican, but he absolutely talked about the need to compete abroad by getting America's house in order at home. Yeah, and it seems like there are other American politicians who don't realize how much it hurts American democracy and also America's image abroad when they are holding up basic government functions. And, you know, for me as an American, you know, I want to see our democracy functioning. But also as a China reporter, I would note that every time U.S. democracy falters like this, it's easy point scoring for Chinese propaganda. And they get to say, look at this, see, your system is inferior, it doesn't work. And, you know, on the point about America becoming more inward looking and isolationist, I think that's also something that China of course, prefers, because if they can point to a lack of U.S. leadership, a lack of U.S. responsibility on the global stage, it helps their argument that we are the rightful leaders, at least of the region of Asia. And that's something I'm very worried about in the next elections, if we see the U.S. return to this very selfish, America first, America only way of thinking. And you talk about being perceived as selfish and responsibility. And of course, second item on the list is at the heart of that, climate change. There are a large number of countries out there who look at America and China, the world's two biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, and they say, you people have to talk to each other and get serious, otherwise the planet is going to fry. And is this something you spoke about with Gallagher and Coons and others in Washington? Yeah, so I'm afraid the bad news headline is that the Republican scepticism about climate change cuts right through the middle of the China debate. So here's Mike Gallagher. I think there is a shared assessment or set of concerns about the CCP threat, but where there's disagreement between the parties, the biggest issue is is climate change, I'd say. If you read the Biden administration's national security strategy, they say that the biggest threat we face overall is climate change. And there's certainly a wing in the administration that thinks we need to engage and cooperate with the CCP when it comes to climate change and that we have shared interests in combating climate change. I'm very skeptical of that view, and I think most Republicans are. Huh, that's interesting. He's skeptical of it. Is he skeptical because he doesn't think that China will seriously cooperate, or because he's skeptical about climate change itself? I pressed him on that. Primarily, I'm skeptical that Xi Jinping cares about commitments made at COP27. It seems to me we're surrendering what should be one of our natural advantages in this competition, which is we have energy abundance in America, which if used smartly could enhance American global leadership. But the sort of rush transition to EVs tragically makes us more dependent on China. Okay, so at least it sounds like he believes in climate change and thinks it's an issue. But his worry is that he thinks that Xi Jinping is not a real partner to work with. And also he thinks that in the green transition, the U.S. is going to become more dependent on China because China produces so many of the world's EVs and batteries and so on. Is that right? Yeah, there's lots of Republicans say exactly the same thing, that because China has such a dominant position in the battery market and the electric vehicle, the EV market, that even if you're not a Republican who wants to kind of drill for oil left, right and centre, it's a good argument to make because this is also politics, right? China policy is exciting to people like you and me, but lots of American voters are not that fussed about foreign policy. They're focused, naturally enough, on issues closer to home. And so it is actually pretty smart domestic electoral politics to take an issue that people already care about, which is these crazy Democrats want to kick you out of your enormous gas-guzzling truck and spend billions of dollars to make us all go green. And then you can bolt onto that 
a new China argument, which is, oh, and by the way, the tiny little electric car that they want to force you to drive is made in China. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there is a legitimate discussion to be had on trying to make the energy transition without being too reliant on China, especially when, for example, China produces the majority of solar panels. A lot of those are made in Xinjiang and it involves forced labor. But I would want to just see that discussion being made seriously and not in a way where it's just to score points and to bash the other party and say, oh, look, you're relying on China. That's bad. So, David, before you went to D.C., I asked you to help me ask some questions about Taiwan, and I am looking forward to hearing what your interlocutors said. You're going to find out shortly. But before we delve into the Taiwan question, we wanted to remind you that it is not long before we launch our new podcast subscription. Economist Podcast Plus begins next week on October 24th. And if you're already a subscriber to The Economist newspaper and website, or one of the many thousands who signed up to take advantage of the podcast deal in the last few weeks, thank you. And thank you too for some really lovely emails telling us that you have decided to join us for the next phase of the journey and signed up. We're delighted to have you along. And next week, we'll be publishing an extra mini episode alongside our regular episode. It's going to be a short welcome to Economist Podcast Plus. And that mini episode will be locked and subscriber only on Apple and Spotify. When you click on it, it will help you link your Economist account to your podcast app and unlock all of the shows that are only for subscribers. You'll get further instructions on how to link your account for access on all platforms next week. And subscriber only episodes of our regular shows will begin the week after. And don't worry if you're not signed up yet. There is still time to get that half price offer. It is $24.50 for a whole year or $2 or pounds or euros a month. For that, you'll be able to listen to every show in the Economist Network, including two new podcasts that we're launching next week. And Economist Podcast Plus will be available on whatever app you are using right now, whether it's Apple, Spotify, The Economist app, or any other. So to sign up for that special offer, just click on the link in the show notes, or you can also find it by Googling Economist Podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So, David, let's move on to Taiwan. I knew that you were going to be seeing people in Washington who are working directly on not only China policy, but also Taiwan policy. And I had given you a few questions that I wanted you to ask, primarily for people like Mike Gallagher and Chris Coons, to ask about how American actions to support Taiwan might be calibrated to make sure that they are really practical and helpful rather than just performative, because that is something that people here in Taiwan worry about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you hear people and they're very worried about it. So I asked Chairman Gallagher, who is, of course, a big China hawk and a Taiwan supporter, whether there are smart ways and less smart ways to be tough on China. And he's unapologetic about being ferocious about the Communist Party. He says he's very careful to separate the party from the Chinese people. But I did say, given that you're saying you need to build up deterrence and make Taiwan's defenses and America's defenses stronger, maybe 
picking fights with China before you finish that might be a bad move. And his answer is that China has too thin a skin. The CCP will claim the smallest thing is a provocation. When we went to California to meet with President Tsai, they lost their minds about it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear him use this example of Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, and how she came to California. Because what happened there was that McCarthy became the new Speaker of the House, right? And he had said previously, you know, he's going to visit Taiwan. And there was a lot of worry here in Taiwan that if he does, is it going to be like the Pelosi visit? Is it going to cause another round of Chinese military exercises, sending missiles flying over Taiwan. And basically what happened is that once McCarthy actually became the speaker, of course, he's no longer the speaker right now, but there was this decision made that he would not come to Taiwan and actually Tsai Ing-wen would transit through California and they would meet there. And that's actually an example of a way to calibrate decisions so that the U.S. can still support Taiwan, but can do it in the least provocative way possible, right? Because they were still having the meeting, but they were able to frame it as totally in line with things that have happened before. The Taiwanese presidents have made transits before. It's perfectly normal. Because, I mean, Gallagher is right that the Communist Party will claim the smallest things of provocation, but still, what we can do is to not give them easy excuses to escalate. And I can totally understand, Alice, that when you're sitting in Taipei, which is a whole lot closer to China than Washington, D.C., there is an intense focus, the people around you, on how provocative you want America to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's something we're going to get into more in our Taiwan series. But Taiwan status is so delicate that it's not so simple as just, oh, it's a democracy. We support it. So let's just say that. And let's just say that we're going to fight if China invades. You can't just say these things very publicly in a rash way. But of course, that is also a big question on the minds of Taiwanese people. You know, if there is a war, is America going to turn up? The answers that I got are all bound up with that divide that we've been talking about, about Are you a kind of inward-looking isolationist America first politician who doesn't want to spend blunt treasure around the world or fix the world's problems? Or do you think America has a duty to defend democracy and its allies around the world? And what was really revealing, really sobering to me, was that Mike Gallagher, on the record, who is a huge Taiwan supporter, even he admits that he's worried that the American public might not be up for a painful and costly war that sees China even not just killing Americans, but just taking like really tough sanctions almost against America. It would be so costly and so severe and our supply chains would be instantly compromised that American support for Taiwan might evaporate in a world in which China cut off the access to life-saving drugs or even smartphones, right? I hate to say that, but that's the political reality we have to contend with. Yeah, that is really alarming. And it's interesting because some people use that argument about how critical Taiwan is and how much of an economic cost, you know, a blockade or cutting off access to Taiwan would be to the rest of the world. Some people use that to say, and so that's why China would be deterred because people would be so angry and they would support sanctioning China. But I mean, Gallagher here is saying, actually, it would be so costly that Americans would just say, you know, this is not worth it. We don't care about Taiwan. That is a very frightening thought. President Biden has been pretty firm on accidentally or intentionally saying that the U.S. will fight for Taiwan. But the question of public support, I think that is something to worry about. So Gallagher, he's not giving up on Taiwan there. I think what he's saying is that credible deterrence cannot rely just on kind of asserting that any future American government will come and fight. So his answer is to accelerate the buildup of U.S. forces 
and the arming of the island of Taiwan. So it's like a porcupine. So then rather than relying upon a president's credibility, you have to put in place the actual uh, conventional hard power that makes it impossible for Xi Jinping to achieve his objective in a, in a military sense. So Gallagher talks about hard power here. And from China's perspective, that is what matters because experts agree that all of China's planning is based on the assumption that America is going to come and fight. And it's not so much about whether the U.S. has an isolationist president or not. For China, it's about whether the U.S. and Taiwan have the hard power in place to stop them from succeeding in an invasion. So Alice, if there's one big conclusion for me after going back to Washington after so many years, it's that you can't take the American public for granted, that their willingness to pay a cost to keep the world safe, to be the global policeman, is really, really fragile right now. And that American politicians, even if they themselves want to defend Taiwan and stand up to China, they're conscious that their voters are tired and feel that America has a lot of problems at home. And so there is a bipartisan consensus, but it is not immune from all of the other political ills that really trouble America right now. And if we do see that America turns back towards this isolationist streak, if that emerges victorious in the next elections, then that will be really dangerous for the US-China relationship and really for the rest of the world. If you want to be an optimist, and we should try, I guess, and end on an optimistic note, there is a real sense that China is a challenge and that America has to take it very seriously. And at least a good number of people on Congress, they know that part of dealing with that challenge means America being its best self. One person said, we have to restore trust in our own democratic institutions here at home if we're going to sound at all credible or serious to the Chinese Communist Party. So if that fear of China drives seriousness about the need to fix American democracy at home, then I guess that would be an optimistic conclusion. I mean, I hope that's what we'll be seeing. Thank you to everyone who's written to us. And remember, you can always email us at drum at economist.com. I really enjoyed hearing from a listener who was born and raised in China, but now lives in Folkestone on the English South Coast, who told us that Drum Tower helps them stay connected to China. Also, Ryan in Minnesota, who is inspired to research ways to pursue his dream of studying international relations after listening to our episode from Georgetown University. So if you want to join our community of Drum Tower listeners, then from October 24th, you will need to be an Economist Podcast Plus subscriber. If you sign up before October the 31st, you can take advantage of a special half-price offer, $24.50, for the whole year, or just $2, pounds or euros a month. And that will give you access to all of our special shows and plenty more that The Economist has coming up. Economist Podcast Plus will be available on any app you're using right now, whether that's Apple, Spotify, The Economist app, or any other. And to sign up for that special offer, you can just click on the link in the show notes. If you're too busy to do that right now, you can find the link later by Googling Economist Podcasts. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you so much for your support. You'll have full access to all of the podcasts. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alizé Jean-Baptiste and Jeha Chen produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Li Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howe.